story of Jesus' earliest ministry, according to Mark. Mark was uh, not necessarily an immediate apostle of Jesus, but he was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Uh, We read about that in the book of Acts, uh, and Barnabas and Paul traveled to plant churches, and John Mark was with them. John Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas. And then later, uh, we were told that, uh, and understand from Peter's letters, that Mark was a companion of, of Peter's and uh, helped uh, Peter translate uh, God's word as he was uh, sharing the word of God in Rome. And eventually, Mark was called upon to write a gospel, to give a, an account, a written account of, of the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the power of Jesus. So as we continue that journey, I would encourage you to turn to the gospel of Mark uh, chapter 1 in your Red Pew Bible. Mark chapter 1, it may be found on page, let's see here, uh, there it is, 1064. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you inspired Mark to put pen to paper We thank you, O God, that by your spirit you have allowed us to now read the words, the teachings, the miracles of Jesus to to see clearly who you are. We pray, O Lord, that as as we read this word today, that you might open our eyes and, and open our hearts, that we might be transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. Listen to the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. I want to pause there just for a second. We hear the town Capernaum and go, where was that? Well, I've got a little map here I want to show you. It's a map of Israel. It's probably hard to see from your distance, but that blue pool of water at the top, that's the Sea of Galilee. It's not really very large, but the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus launched most of his ministry. If you remember the sermon from last Sunday, everybody remember the sermon from last Sunday? Amen? Okay, you can download if you don't remember it. Anyway, Jesus begins his ministry by calling Andrew, Simon, James, and John along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And all four of these men were from a, a small village called Capernaum. And in fact, if you were to look at the map, you could see a little further west is Nazareth. And Nazareth was, it was even smaller than Capernaum. And of course, Capernaum and Nazareth are, they're in Galilee. And then if you look south, you can see there's Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel. And Jerusalem is where the temple was. And the temple was the center of worship for Jewish people, where they would go and bring animals for sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and celebrate great feasts like the Passover. But throughout ancient Palestine, there were different synagogues or gathering places where the people of God would would gather to read God's word. They would read the Torah or the Old Testament And then someone would teach or share God's word. Listen to the people's response to the teachings of Jesus. And they were astonished at his teachings. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now the scribes were the people who would basically copy the Bible. They didn't have printing presses, so if you wanted to copy the Bible, you had a handwritten copy. And the scribes were trained in how to, how to transcribe the word of God, how to, how to copy the word of God. And, and as they copied the word of God, they became experts in the law of God. And so they would often be called upon not only to, to share what the Bible says, but to explain it. And they would often go to, to great rabbis or teachers, like Rabbi Hillel was a popular one. And so they would, they would read a text typically, and they would say, now, Rabbi Hillel says so-and-so. 
But Jesus never quotes another rabbi. Jesus quotes himself. He teaches as one who has great authority. We see a sample of this authority in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 22, Jesus is preaching and he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that's preaching with authority, huh? He doesn't say, Rabbi Hillel says, he says, no, but I say to you, he he quotes the Ten Commandments, specifically the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. And then he says, but I say to you, a scribe would never say, but I say to you, a scribe would quote somebody else, but Jesus is making bold proclamations, explanations of the word of God. Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, is preaching with such authority that the the people are, are astonished, our text says. Other English translations say they were amazed, they were astounded, they were surprised at the teachings of this carpenter from Nazareth. After all, what good could come from Nazareth, right? It's such a small town. Yet Jesus continues to preach with boldness. Jesus teaches with such authority that it begins to astound the crowd. It amazes them, it surprises them, and it begins to scare the demons. As we continue reading our text this morning, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Notice that according to Mark, the first miracle that Jesus does is to cast out an unclean spirit or or a demon. Now, as Presbyterians, we always like to tell our Baptist or Church of Christ friends that the the first miracle of Jesus was to turn water into wine, right? That's in John, and we like to lift that up because we like our wine, and they give us a hard time for drinking wine, right? Like, no, no, Jesus turned water into wine. It was the first miracle. I should have seen it. Reminds me of a story. Um, uh, You know, we've got this great uh, partnership with the four Amarillo downtown Protestant churches, First Baptist, Central Church of Christ, and then Polk Street United Methodist, and love working with those guys. And it's working well because, you know, we all have the same focus, which is making disciples of Jesus. And while there's a lot of differences, uh, you know, the Baptists require a lot more water than we do with the baptisms. And... Church of Christ don't use instruments when they, they worship God. And the Methodists, you know, they, they, well, they've got a real different structure with bishops and their government system. You know, but, but, but for us, the main thing is Jesus. And so it's working really well. Well, this partnership became real popular among uh, Church of Christ churches. It became well known. And so we were actually invited to go to a national gathering of Church of Christ pastors and leadership to talk about why this partnership's working so well at Abilene Christian University. 
Well, I went there thinking that we were going to do a small breakout session. And when we went, I was amazed that we were assigned a lecture hall uh, filled with people, over 100 people. We're here to listen about how our partnership is working so well and why. Well, as Alan, who's the Central Church of Christ pastor, was doing most of the talk and he shared about what's working well. And then finally we opened it up for questions. And a, and a woman raised her hand and said, I would like to ask the Presbyterian. I'm like, oh no, Presbyterian. <laughs> What is it like for you to work with the Church of Christ? And, and, and you have to know a little bit of history, but perhaps of where this question was, was coming from. You, you see, historically, the Church of Christ came out of the restoration movement here in this country, and many of the pastors who helped start that restoration movement were, were originally Presbyterian, men like Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, or Barton Stone. And so some, some people may think we're upset that they broke away from us, that they left us, and so maybe we're still holding a grudge. Well... Knowing a little bit of the history, I decided to take a different angle on that. And so she asked me, what is it like for you as a Presbyterian to, to work with the Church of Christ? I said, well, I'll be honest with you. Many of our newest members are former Baptists or former Church of Christ who just want to have a beer. <laughs> Bert Palmer then t- stood up and gave me a high five on that one. He thought that was pretty funny. But uh, sometimes we can major on the minors, right? Make a big deal about stuff that... And we've always liked to say here in the Presbyterian Church, yeah, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine. But not according to Mark. According to Mark, the first miracle was to cast out a demon. Of course, we don't think a lot about demons today, do we? As you remember from last Sunday, you do remember last Sunday's sermon, right? Amen? Uh, Last week, we talked about the the heart of Jesus' message was the coming of the kingdom of God. Let's look again at what it was Jesus preached exactly. It's in verse 15 of chapter one. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As we talked about last week, Jews have been waiting for centuries and centuries and centuries for the kingdom of God, the reign of God to be made known. Because Jews have been singing for many years now psalms like Psalm 145 to their children which we read last week, it says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Jewish parents for centuries have been telling their children about the time that God delivered them from the evil hand of Pharaoh and released them from slavery from Egypt so they might come into the promised land. For generations, they've been telling their Jewish children about the time that Joshua led the tribes of Israel to defeat the city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And how God was able to use Joshua again to defeat the Amorite king so they might come into the promised land. They've been telling stories about how God would raise up judges like Gideon, Gideon who took on the Midianites even though his army was small. They've been telling stories about how God took a little shepherd boy named David and allowed him to kill the giant Philistine, Goliath, and how God protected the people of Israel time and time and time again from their enemies. But now in the first century, now in the first century, the people of Israel are living under Roman rule. They are a conquered, subjugated people in their own homeland. And it's been over 400 years since a, since a prophet like Malachi has spoken God's word and they've been wondering and waiting, when will the kingdom of God come? When will God's reign be made known so that every knee will bow? And it's in the midst of this great waiting that Jesus burst onto the scene and boldly preaches, the time is fulfilled, the time you've been waiting for is now and the kingdom of God 
power of God, the reign of God is at hand. Believe, repent, and believe in the gospel. The time has come. The reign, the power of God is made known. And as the power of God is made known, the demons shudder in fear. Because the kingdom of God and the reign of God comes, the demons know they must leave. And so the demon says in verse 23 of our text, and there immediately was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you, do to, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The unclean spirit knows who Jesus is. But the crowds listening to Jesus speak don't really know who he is. They're just amazed at his teaching with such authority. Yes, the unclean spirits, the demons know who Jesus is, but the people do not. Why is that? Well, it might be helpful if we knew a little bit more about demons and unclean spirits specifically. In our text this morning, Mark uses the term for unclean spirits in the Greek. That's a great translation. But we know from other passages in the Gospel of Mark that Mark views unclean spirits and the Greek word for demon, those are interchangeable terms. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus tells the, or Mark tells the story of how Jesus cast a demon out of the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman. We read, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, heard of Jesus, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Gentile was a non-Jew, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed, and the demon was gone. Notice in Mark 7, originally it's described as an unclean spirit, and then later it's described as a demon. Those are interchangeable terms for for Mark. And and Mark tells the story of 18 different miracles of Jesus, but four of the 18 are about an exorcism, about Jesus casting a demon out of somebody who is demon-possessed and has an unclean spirit. But in the America, in the 21st century today, we don't talk a lot about demons, do we? I mean, most of us don't have a personal experience of a demon, so it's not something that we, we think about. But, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the, the three synoptic gospels, all talk extensively about Jesus casting out demons. It was a common practice. It was a big part of his ministry because as the kingdom of God was advancing, the demons had to leave. It's almost a fourth of Mark's miracle stories are about demons being cast out. Mark wants us to see that with the coming of Christ's kingdom, the demons will have to leave. They will have to depart. That Jesus has more power, more authority than any evil or unclean spirit. It's the purpose of writing about Jesus' various exorcisms is to show his readers that as the Son of God, he's much more powerful than demons. With a simple word of his mouth, the demon is silenced and cast out. But today we don't talk a lot about demons. We don't think about demons much in America, do we? Maybe one of the reasons is because, well, we don't have experience with that. We tend to think about what we can see and feel and what we experience. 
But we know from the scriptures that the kingdom of God is advancing. Perhaps because the kingdom of God is advancing, the presence of demons is is less known to us. But according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that a third of God's angels are fallen angels. Now, that still means it's a two-to-one ratio, good angels to bad angels, which is good good numbers, but but we can never underestimate our enemy. In fact, the truth is the number one rule in warfare is never underestimate your enemy. The power of the enemy to impact others. In September, several of us traveled to Germany as a part of the Reformation tour. We were celebrating the 500 years of the Reformation. We went to Wittenberg, where Martin Luther put the 95 Thesis on the door of the church there. It was a a great uh, trip. We began our trip actually in Berlin, and we went to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's house. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a German pastor, theologian, and seminary professor who boldly spoke out against uh, Hitler and the Nazi regime and how they were trying to to, uh, take over the church, and he started his own confessing church movement to speak up against what they were doing against the Jews. We went to Bonhoeffer's house, then we went to to, uh, the Berlin Wall, to Checkpoint Charlie, to see where that used to be the American uh, place in Berlin where people would come in and out. And then we went to this new museum called the Topography of Terror. The Topography of Terror is located where the headquarters of the Gestapo and SS once stood. The displays in the museum began to explain how Germany could allow itself to be ruled by such a horrible party like the Nazi party. It began to explain how the Nazi party came to power and ultimately how this party led to the death of six million people. Jews in Europe. How could any party, how could any group of people seek to kill six million Jews simply because they were Jew? How could anyone do something so evil? As historians continue to look into the origins of the Nazi party in Germany, it's clear that several of the original leaders were involved with the occult. They actually used cultic teachings to help rewrite histories about the origins of of a superior Aryan race. My friends, evil is real. The influence of Satan to come and steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus explains in the Gospel of John chapter 10, is very, very real. Just look at the Holocaust to see the presence of pure evil in this world. Just look at Kim Jong-un, who's doing, in North Korea, what he's doing now. He's got 120,000 of his own people imprisoned because they will not bow down to him and follow his ideology. He's got over 30,000 Christians who are imprisoned today simply because they confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. In fact, North Korea is at the top of the world watch list as the most difficult place for Christians to live, and it's been that way for over 17 years now. Here's a video that gives us an idea of what it's like to be a Christian in North Korea. My friends, the impact of evil can be seen wherever the church is being persecuted. What is it that would inspire someone to kill or to imprison people simply because they were Christian? It's the evil one. As Jesus says in John 8, the father of lies. As he says in John 10, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So what are we to do? We need to pray. You may notice that in your uh, bulletin this morning, there's a prayer guide. The month of February, I would invite you to join me in praying for the persecuted church around the globe. The uh, Open Doors helps put this together so that we might pray specifically for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. You need to know that our church and its operating budget gives $10,000 a year to help the persecuted church around the world. 
This evil is real and it's going to continue to persecute the church, continue to try to stop the church from growing until Christ comes back and makes his presence known to all. The good news of our text this morning is that Jesus is more powerful than the demons. He's more powerful than Satan himself. In fact, we can look at the end of the gospel, Mark, and see that he's more powerful than sin and death. For on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And so we do not need to be afraid, but we do need to be prepared. If we remember when Jesus launches his ministry after his baptism, right before that, he goes into the wilderness, right after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness, and he spends 40 days in the wilderness where Satan tries to tempt Jesus. Matthew and Luke give more detailed accounts of that temptation. But every time he is tempted, Jesus uses the word of God to thwart the temptations of Satan. If we want to resist the temptations that the evil one brings to us, we need to have, as Paul says, the sword of the spirit, the sword of truth, the word of God. For Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance making supplication for all the saints. What are we to do in response to the evil that exists in this world? We are called to pray. Guided by the word of God, we are called to pray. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We need to pray for for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Kim Jong-un that they might come to know Christ as Lord, that they might be converted, that their heart of stone might be changed into a heart of flesh. For if God is able to convert Paul, who was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, God can convert anyone. And if all the enemies of the church today were converted to the cause of Christ, the persecution would end. Yes, we need to pray. We need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. We need to pray with great confidence, knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We do not have to fear the enemy, for Christ is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so with the authority in the name of Christ, the name that is above every name, the name which literally means Yahweh saves, we need to pray that our enemies might be converted that the evil demons and the spirits that are possessing them might be taken away and they might see clearly who God is, how much God loves us, how much God loves us so much that he would send his son to die for us, that they might come to Christ and be saved. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much that in this story of Jesus' first miracle in the gospel of Mark, with one word of his mouth, he shows that he has the power to silence a demon, a power to cast him out.
Well, Lord, we know that by your spirit we have that same power, the power to to speak your truth, the power to to proclaim your good news. Although we pray that by your power you might change the hearts of our enemies, that they might see what they are doing is wrong, that they might be converted to your ways, that they might repent and be forever changed and ultimately be saved. God, you tell us to pray for enemies. So we pray for the enemies of the church, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. We pray for Kim Jong-un and those who are persecuting the church today. We pray that you might change them. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe who are being persecuted. We pray, O Lord, that you might strengthen them, that you might make your presence known to them, that you might allow them to persevere. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.